My text this Lord's Day is from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. It's been said, the family is a seminary of the church and commonwealth. These words were uttered by William Gouge in Domestical Duties, page 17. Anyone familiar at all with gardening will immediately see the accuracy of this statement. For a seminary is literally a seed bed or a seed plot. Now, perhaps you ladies never thought of yourselves as working in a seminary when you plant your spring and summer gardens. But in your gardens, you prepare the soil. You plant the seeds. You care for those seeds with water, nutrition, trying to give those seeds the the right amount of light, keeping and protecting those seeds from the weeds that would choke out the seed, protecting it from hungry animals and protecting it from excessive heat or cold as best as you can. Well, similarly, dear ones, each family is a seminary garden. However, the seed that grows in the family is not of mere temporal significance, but is of eternal significance. In the family, whether that family is non-Christian or nominal Christian, or truly Christian, eternal souls are being grown in that seedbed. For better or for worse, the family is a seminary for the church and the commonwealth. And you can tell. You can tell the quality of the seminary education that is being provided by families today by simply observing the condition of the church and of the commonwealth. How well is the family doing its job in seminary training? Not very well. In fact, we could say, by and large, it's failing. It's failing. Dear ones, are we grieved today that the church of Jesus Christ is marked by so much unfaithfulness and division? Are we ashamed of the unrighteous leaders that rule the civil government? Well, where should we begin to look look for the source of these problems? Dear ones, the familial seminary is where we should begin looking. For it is failing in its God-ordained mission to prepare godly seed for the church and state. It's time to get back to the basics and to seek by God's grace to understand and practice again the high calling of seminary training within the family. And to that end, we will be considering over the next several weeks such subjects as the institution of marriage, preparing for marriage, 
the duties of those who are married, divorce and remarriage, procreation in marriage, and instruction in parenting in marriage. This Lord's Day, we begin by briefly focusing our attention upon an overview of the divine institution of marriage as found in the original charter of marriage here in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. And we will consider the three following main points from this text. First of all, the preeminence of marriage. Second, the permanence of marriage. And thirdly, the promise of marriage. As we consider the first main point, the preeminence of marriage, I hope this does not come as a shock to any within the sound of my voice, but there is no perfect marriage. Why is there no perfect marriage? Well, because there are two people within each marriage who sin daily. And this has always been the case since the fall. Dear ones, Eve before the fall was the one and only woman that could truly say that she had a perfect husband. And Adam before the fall was the only man that could say he had an angelic wife. If we are to receive God's grace and help in our marriages, we must begin by humbly acknowledging that both Christian and non-Christian marriages have this one thing in common, at least this one thing. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. For you see, becoming a Christian does not remove us from the realm of sin and place us in a condition of perfection while in this life. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, For there is not a just man upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not. In 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 10, we find these words. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. What's the solution? Found in verse 9 of that same chapter. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And though we have that in common with even the non-Christian marriages, what does, however, distinguish the Christian marriage from the non-Christian marriage is that we Christians have been delivered from the guilt and penalty of our sin through the redemptive love of the Lord Jesus Christ. As Christians, we have the power of God's Spirit abiding within us so that more and more we are able to put off the old and to put on the new, to put to death the old man and to make alive the new man by His grace and by His Spirit. 
And dear ones, we also have exceedingly great and numerous promises in the Word of God as Christians within a marriage that we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. And sin shall not have dominion over us. And therefore, we are victors and not victims. It is true that as Christians, we have to continue to battle with, within ourselves. We have to continue to battle similar kinds of problems as non-Christians. To wage war against the temptations of the flesh. That's true. But dear ones, as Christians, we have the solution. We have the remedy to overcoming the problems and the troubles that plague so many marriages so that these problems do not need to destroy our marriages, but actually by God's grace can become building blocks upon which to build a solid foundation and a strong marriage in Jesus Christ. And therefore, I urge you, let us neither slide into a sinful complacency about our marriages, believing they are unsinkable, taking husband or wife for granted. Nor let us drift into a sinful despair, believing that they are hopelessly doomed, that even God Himself cannot bless and prosper them. For where sin did abound, grace, my beloved, did much more abound. God's sovereign and free grace swallows up the greatest and most heinous sins as well as the least conspicuous and hidden sins. You see, God is not only in the business of sanctifying individual Christians. God is in the business of sanctifying marriages and churches and nations. It has been my great privilege to witness the mighty hand of God intervene in marriages even when it appeared that minds were made up to pursue a divorce. To see God work miraculously in the lives of people. What a testimony to His power, His grace, and His love. You see, the following words not only apply to the miraculous conception of our Savior, but also apply to our marriages as well. For with God, nothing shall be impossible. Do you believe that today, child of God? With God, nothing shall be impossible. Take hold of Jesus Christ today. He is the Savior and He not only saves us as individuals, but saves our marriages as well. If Jesus Christ was not in the business of saving marriages, dear ones, our marriage would crumble and fall and be destroyed instantaneously because we cannot keep our marriages together apart from His grace. Have you thanked Him lately? Have you given Him praise and glory 
that you are still living together with your wife or husband. That is a testimony to his grace for you, dear people of God. I would have you note from our text that God exalts marriage as preeminent among human relationships. Genesis 2.24, that verse begins with a conclusion when it uses the word therefore. What is the therefore, therefore? What is the conclusion that is being drawn? Well, we need to look just previously in the chapter to see why the Lord begins verse 24 with therefore. In Genesis chapter 2, we find that God details for us the pinnacle of his creation, man as male and female. In this chapter, the Lord describes in detail the forming of a man from the dust of the earth and is breathing into man the breath of life. The Lord God then prepared an actual paradise upon earth for this sinless and righteous man wherein he might live and work. Adam was given a specific calling by God and work to perform in tilling the ground and naming the various animals in this paradise or this picture of heaven upon earth. And although... God was under no obligation to do so. He even graciously entered into a covenant with Adam, who as a federal head represented all his posterity descending from him by ordinary generation. In this covenant, God promised that Adam and all his posterity would fall under the curse of sin and death if he did not perfectly obey God's good and holy commandments. But also by implication, God promised in this covenant that Adam and all his posterity with him would enjoy the blessedness of life, peace, and joy forever if he perfectly kept God's righteous law as written upon his own heart and as spoken from the very mouth of God. And Adam enjoyed perfect fellowship Perfect fellowship. No hindrances with regard to sin or temptation. We don't know how long Adam existed in that condition. But for that period of time, perfect fellowship with the Lord God. What a glorious thought. He enjoyed that fellowship. uh, No hindrance at all due to the sin or temptation within But there, according to the text, there was one thing that Adam lacked. Let's see what that is. Even with all the perfect blessings enjoyed by Adam in such a paradise, the Lord saw that the man was yet not complete, for he did not have a helper or a companion that was meet or fit for him. It was not good that Adam was alone the Lord God said in Genesis chapter 2, verse 20. So, dear ones, Eve was created for Adam in order to help and support him in his calling. 
in Adam's calling to subdue the entire earth and to bring the entire earth under God's subjection to the glory of the Lord God. He, she was created to be his companion, his helper. And by means of propagation of holy seed to accomplish this for God's glory. So, you see, from the very beginning, Eve was not created to be Adam's mistress, as if physical intimacy were the only interest he had in her, nor was she created to be his slave, as if marriage is just another term for slavery. She was created not to be his mistress, but his wife. She was not created to be his slave, but his companion and helper. Mark it down, dear ones. Whoever promotes the idea that women are inherently more evil than men or essentially slaves to men has perverted the word of God. The order of creation, Adam first and Eve Second, certainly implies that God has made man the head of his wife and that man is to lovingly lead her and she is lovingly to submit to his leadership in the home. For you see, God could have created Adam and Eve at exactly the same time, thereby implying that there was no priority of time in their creation. But God intentionally created man first and then woman so as to indicate within the home that man is to lovingly lead his wife and she is to cheerfully submit to his leadership within the home. And so why did God create Eve not from the soil like Adam. Why did God create Eve from one of his ribs? Why did the Lord remove that rib from Adam? What was the Lord saying by that? Well, as we read the account of Eve's creation in Genesis chapter 2, verses 21 and 22, we understand that the Lord herein emphasizes more from this text than simply the headship of man. We're not simply talking about a priority as to chronology, that man was created first. But now we see that God did not create woman from the dust like he did man, but he created the woman from the rib of the man. Dear ones, because God made woman from the rib of man, God not only emphasized the headship of man by virtue of his prior existence, but also emphasized the mutual affection a husband and a wife are to have one for the other. For she is bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. She is his flesh and he is her flesh. They are part one of the other. 
And she was created from a part of Adam's body that is close to his heart. Not from his feet to be trodden upon as a rival or as an enemy, but one to be cared for, loved, shown affection to, one who is near to his side, one whom he would protect and care for, not abuse, not beat up, but protect. And so the first marriage that was ever conducted was conducted there by God in the Garden of Eden. This first marriage before the fall of man, therefore, as we look at the account, condemns polygamy, for God did not create two wives for Adam, nor two husbands for Eve. This biblical account condemns incest, for Adam and Eve were not brother or sister, father or daughter, or some other close relative. This biblical institution of marriage condemns fornication and immorality of every kind, for this union was not simply a physical union, but a physical union that was built upon a covenantal union, as we shall see in a moment. This account condemns sodomy, for God brought a man and a woman together in marriage, not two men or two women. And it condemns divorce, in that it shows that such a dissolution of marriage was not originally contemplated as a part of the original institution of marriage. But that divorce for adultery and willful desertion was permitted by God due to the sin of men and women in breaking covenant with their spouses. It was not so from the beginning, Jesus said. Divorce, even though there may be an innocent party within divorce, divorce is always the result of sin and covenant breaking. Jesus said, What therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. Matthew 19.6 Now that we have seen what precedes Genesis 2.24, we can better understand the conclusion drawn in that verse. If we were to paraphrase it, it would be something like this. Because God created the man or created the woman to be a helper and lifelong companion to the man. And because she was created from the very flesh of man, which was nearest to his heart. And because God brought this woman to this man, and as their mutual father gave one to the other in marriage, therefore... Therefore, the following truths must be maintained in marriage as God ordained it. The first truth is that of the preeminence of marriage. The preeminence of marriage. <clears throat> For we find in Genesis chapter 2 these words. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother. The preeminence of this relationship, even over the parent-child relationship. 
Although the parent-child relationship is exceedingly strong and important, that relationship of parent and child is subordinate to the union of a husband and wife. The first and primary relationship within a family is not the parent and child relationship. The first and primary relationship is the lawful marriage of one man to one woman. And here, I believe, is one reason why many marriages go astray. Marriages so often are held together because simply of the children. Everything is done simply for the children. And once the children leave home, There is nothing left in the marriage to keep that marriage together. For you see, dear ones, the Lord did not create Adam and Eve and their children from the very beginning. He first created a man and a woman and united them together in a marriage covenant. And then He commanded them, Be fruitful and multiply. And that's why the Lord says, Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother. And of course, the same is true for the woman as well. She should likewise leave her father and mother. Now this leaving that is here spoken of with regard to a married couple is not one which renounces all ties to the parent and forsakes the parent after They have been united in marriage. This is not the leaving which would say, I no longer have any duties or obligations to honor my parents according to the fifth commandment. For this was what was taught by the Pharisees. They didn't explicitly teach that children were not to honor their parents, but they said basically that children were not to care for their parents when in need. They were to say that the money that they should have used to care for their parents was Corbin, that it was devoted to the church as a means of escaping having to care for their parents. Jesus condemns that as unlawful and sinful, dishonoring of of their parents, a breaking of the fifth commandment. You see, God calls married children to love, respect, and care for their parents. And yes, even to listen and to learn from the wisdom of parents when it is agreeable to the Word of God. However, the leaving that is here spoken of in Genesis 2.24 is a leaving to form a new family unit. No longer is this married couple under the direct rule of parents. But now, through the covenant of marriage, they have assumed new responsibilities, one to the other, which alter the relationship they once had with their parents. There's not a dissolution of that relationship with their parents. There's an altering and a changing of that relationship. After the marriage of their children, their ones, parents must not remember this as while your children are young. Begin to think in terms of this, parents. 
Parents must not seek to retain control of their children, either by manipulation of emotions or by threats or by tears. Parents should be willing to offer help, advice, and counsel when requested. Yes, and even admonition where there is sin, even when it's not requested. But reasonable, moral persuasion and godly example is how parents should generally guide their children after they are married. Reasoning with them according to the scriptures. Setting a godly example through their own marriage as to how this new married couple should live before God and walk in faithfulness to the word of God. I'm convinced that if there was a simple understanding of this one principle, the preeminence of marriage over every other human relationship, much trouble would be averted by married children being too dependent upon parents rather than upon one another, going to their parents at the drop of a hat, expecting their parents to continue to meet all of their needs, And it would also go a long way in resolving the whole problem of parents being too intrusive in the lives of married children as well. Furthermore, dear ones, this one principle would set straight and keep straight before the eyes of growing children within the home that the relationship between dad and mom is foundational to the peace, love, Harmony and respect within that home. That's absolutely foundational as far as human relationships. The most foundational, obviously, is our relationship with Jesus Christ. But as far as human relationships, that is most foundational. Of course, I'm not advocating a neglect of any duty we owe our children. But we must realize that we actually serve, help, and instruct our children the most when we invest the time that is necessary to have an affectionate, not just a relationship, but an affectionate relationship with our husband or our wife. My own experience would teach, and probably the experience of everyone else here, that the most significant teaching tool you'll ever use in preparing your children for marriage is your own example in marriage. Actions speak louder than words. How do your children see you as husband and wife functioning together, working together, I understand that not every home is the same with regard to having a husband and wife who want to develop and grow in their relationship with one another in love and affection. I understand that. But the call nevertheless goes out to each and every person, each husband and each wife. Are you doing what you know to do? Are you being as faithful as you possibly can? in all of those duties. And we will consider in an upcoming sermon the duties that God gives to husbands and wives.
I had the privilege of witnessing the births of my last three children. And as the doctor took out his scissors to cut the umbilical cord, I didn't all of a sudden grab the doctor's arm and say, no way are you going to cut that umbilical cord. I won't let you separate that child from his mother. Why didn't I do so? Because the child will not survive in the real world unless that umbilical cord is cut. And similarly, dear ones, a marriage will not survive if there is not a formal severing of the cord to form a new family unit between parent and child. Both parents and children must let go for God says, leave. Leave. That brings us to our second main point, which is the permanence of marriage. We're not only to leave, but according to God's word, we are as well to cleave. Genesis, again, chapter 2, verse 24 says, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife. We learn from this the divine and original institution of marriage is to be a permanent relationship. A lifelong bond between a husband and a wife. That is God's intention. That is God's original design. And it still is His design for marriages. We ought never to enter into a marriage thinking that we will break that marriage covenant. Literally, the words he shall cleave unto his wife mean he shall be glued with his wife. You see, you're not to, to put it in modern terminology, you're not to view your marriage as though you were taped together or stapled together, but rather that you are glued together with the most unbreakable bond and type of glue imaginable. Till death do us part are the words. If not explicitly stated, certainly implied that we pledged to our spouse on the day in which we were married. We will be addressing the issue in a future sermon or sermons, the issue of divorce. But what we have promised in the marriage covenant is to be faithful to our spouse. This is our promise. To be faithful to our spouse till the day we die. As long as they are, or he or she is, our spouse. We are to be faithful to them as our spouse. For that reason, we must never entertain thoughts or feed our minds with the garbage that's on TV or in books that promote such ungodly thoughts 
<clears throat> as a divorce as simply a remedy, a quick fix, a solution, because we're tired of living with this person. Because the marriage covenant is a civil covenant between two people, it's true, it can be broken. And it's true, it can be dissolved for adultery and willful desertion is taught by Christ and the Apostle Paul. More of that again in a future sermon. But I submit to you, dear ones, that if you freely throw around the word divorce when you get angry and into an argument with one another, or if you freely use the word divorce when you're talking with your friends or before your children because you've had a fight with your husband or wife, or if you fill your eyes and your ears with the garbage that's on television or in novels, it will, over the process, and span of time become more and more and more acceptable to you as an alternative when you feel like you're trapped in a marriage you want to be out of. If you begin to just freely throw that term around, dear ones, I urge you, I beg you, do not use that term. God says He hates divorce. He hates putting away. Neither Scripture nor the law of nature, dear ones, however, requires, listen closely, requires women to remain at home when their own life or limb is at risk or that of their children. The sixth commandment, which commands us not only to preserve our own life, not only to not take away the life of others, but to preserve our own life and the life of others. When either our own life or the life of our children is threatened, the Sixth Commandment does indeed require us to flee. The Sixth Commandment does require us to separate. That is not the same thing as, however, divorce. It is to separate for a time until the dust clears, until things are resolved in that kind of an urgent situation. Not for every simple uh, problem that we might have in a marriage, but for those kinds of extreme circumstances. And I believe as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, therefore, in Paul's instruction concerning Marriage. The Apostle says, verses 10 and 11 of 1 Corinthians 7, And unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband, but, and if she depart, let her remain unmarried, or be reconciled to her husband, and let not the husband put, his, put away his wife. The Apostle says the general rule is not to depart, not to separate. But in extraordinary circumstances, if she does separate, if she does depart, let her remain unmarried so that she might be reconciled yet to her husband. Let her not divorce except for two reasons that we will consider 
in the future. The reasons given in Scripture of adultery and willful desertion. In regard, dear ones, to such physical violence or serious threats to that effect within a marriage and as to what should be done in that case, that is separation, not divorce, Calvin correctly notes in his in the book entitled Calvin's Ecclesiastical Advice, pages 151 and 163, note what he says. He says, I always exhort the married not to leave their partner until they have tried everything within their power to attract and win the other, because the marriage bond merits our fulfillment of all its vows. Hence, neither the husband nor the wife should leave without being under the restraint of grave peril. That is, unless the wife threatens her husband or he threatens her. What then? May those who have left their partners remarry? Such severances do not break the marriage bond. Rather, they provide flight from the fury of the gospel's enemies. He who has so retired must still earnestly solicit his partner until an evident cause for divorce is found. And those who are separated in this manner ought to live as widowed. If she cannot be safe from idolatry except by clearly endangering her life. And if her husband presses her to such an extent that he actually persecutes her himself, then she will be permitted to turn, take thought for herself, and flee. Her intent should not be to turn away from her husband and desert him, but only to avoid obvious danger, and only until the Lord causes her husband's savage heart to grow mild and calm. The last main point is the promise of marriage. When the Lord states in Genesis 2.24, and they shall be one flesh. Dear ones, we are not only to understand this language as signifying the intimate relationship that lawfully exists within marriage. For the physical union is actually an outward sign of the covenant that exists between a husband and wife. Husband and wife become one flesh before physical intimacy ever occurs. It is because they become one flesh by virtue of a covenant. And they demonstrate that they are one flesh by virtue of that covenant by enjoying together the physical intimacy that God has permitted them. And you see, that is why the Lord forbids this physical union with a harlot in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. Therein we find the words of the apostle to this effect. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of a harlot? God forbid. What? Know ye not that he which is joined to a harlot is one body? For two, saith he, shall be one flesh. <clears throat> the way the apostle is arguing is not that, <clears throat> that one flesh is established by virtue merely of the physical union with the harlot. What he is basically saying is 
that you are in effect demonstrating that you have made a covenant with this woman if you are having physical relationships with her. That's what this physical intimacy implies in marriage. A covenant has been made. And therefore, the apostle argues that you are not to engage in this because there is no one flesh. There is no covenant that's been established. That's why it is wrong. That's why it is wicked and evil. We find this, this marriage covenant explicitly mentioned in Malachi chapter 2 and verse 14 where the Lord brings against Israel a controversy that he has with them. He brings his charges against them. And one of the things that he brings to Israel is this. Yet ye say, wherefore? Because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously. Yet is she thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. You are treating someone that you have covenanted with to be one flesh who is a part of you. You are treating her as if you hate her. You are treating her treacherously. God says you have broken covenant with her. And God says, I will take up her cause. And I will come against you. And I will bring my judgments upon you for having treated this covenant so lightly. And it's certainly, this covenant relationship is certainly implied in the words of our Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 19, verse 6, when he says, Wherefore they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. That is why, even if there can be no physical intimacy once a marriage covenant is established, it is no less a marriage covenant. It is not the physical intimacy that establishes and grounds it as a covenant, as a lawful marriage. It is the covenant itself that does so. A lot of these are foundational principles, but unless we lay the foundation properly, dear ones, when we get on to more thorny, more difficult kinds of questions, we will not know how to resolve them unless we lay this foundation Thus, this civil covenant, which unites Christians in marriage and also unites non-Christians in marriage, is a mutual consent on the part of a man and woman made before witnesses to be united in the bond of marriage. That's a definition for marriage. A civil covenant or mutual consent and contract on the part of a man and woman made before witnesses 
to be united in the bond of marriage. That's why even non-Christians can have lawful marriages because they also can have a mutual consent before witnesses to be married and joined in marriage. This mutual consent in this covenant is a promise. A promise for better or for worse. A promise for richer or for poorer. A promise in sickness and in health to be faithful to he or she who is your companion, your helper by covenant. And there are two extremes. As we draw to a close, there are two extremes that must be avoided. In discussion of this marriage covenant, the first extreme is that is this. Because it is a civil covenant, does not give the civil magistrate the right to alter or change the law of God as to establish no-fault divorces. Simply because it is a civil covenant and contract, mutual consent between two people does not give the civil magistrate to intervene and change the institution of marriage so that divorce can occur, occur, occur for any reason. So that no one is to blame for that divorce. That is not what the scripture teaches. The civil magistrate is obligated to uphold only those grounds given by God for divorce. And second extreme that we must avoid, because marriage is a civil covenant in which, in Christian marriages at least, God is called to witness the covenant made does not imply that marriage is a sacrament as taught by the Romish church. Marriage is indeed ordained by God. Marriage is indeed blessed by Jesus Christ. In Christian marriages, Jesus Christ is called to witness the promises that are made one to the other in marriage. But it cannot be a sacrament. For sacraments are only to be given to professing Christians. Whereas marriage is lawful among all people, even as Hebrews chapter 13.4 says, marriage is honorable in all, in all without distinction, in all people, Christian, non-Christian alike. It's honorable in all. <clears throat> Technically, the covenant in marriage is made with a man and a woman and not with a couple and God. Very fine distinction. But technically, the marriage covenant is not made between a, a man and a wife who covenant directly with God. It is primarily a civil contract between two people. In a Christian marriage, it is solemnized by calling God to witness uh, himself to witness the promises that are made before other witnesses. 
But it's important, again, to recognize that distinction. Because if it is, in fact, a promise that is made to God that constitutes a legitimate marriage, if that is the case, then no non-Christian can be lawfully married. Because no non-Christian can truly covenant with God, being outside of a covenant relationship with God. That would mean all non-Christians in marriages are living in an adulterous relationship. Furthermore, if God were the one with whom the covenant was made, non-Christians would not be able as well to say, and we would not be able to affirm on the part of these marriages that marriage, as we mentioned earlier, is honorable in all. I conclude this sermon, this Lord's Day, by pointing pointing out to you that the greatest motivation given by God for the sanctifying of our marriages is that it is a picture of our union with Jesus Christ. According to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, this very passage that I have just read from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, is quoted, quoted by the Apostle Paul. And he says this, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. Now notice, verse 32, This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. You see, the relationship that a husband and wife enjoy, to, enjoy together, the covenant that's established there is a picture of a greater relationship between Christ and the church. And I would ask you in light of that, what is the picture of Christ in his church that we are reflecting to our children and to others by our own marriage? Are we reflecting through our marriage that Christ and the church are continually at war with one another? Is that what we're reflecting? Men, are our children learning about the love of Jesus Christ for his bride, his willingness to sacrifice all for her good and her sake, his blessing her with all spiritual benefits, and his leadership by both his instruction and his example? Are we teaching our children that by our own marriage? Ladies, are your children learning about the love and submission of the church of Jesus Christ to Christ in all lawful commands that you obey? in your home? And are they learning concerning your desire to be a faithful helper and a companion to your husband? The covenant of grace wherein we are united to Jesus Christ is likened 
in the Scripture to a marriage covenant. For Jesus Christ, dear ones, has redeemed us from our adulterous relationship with other gods by having given his life in exchange for ours. He has wooed us to himself in the courtship period, as it were. We have been betrothed unto Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul teaches. And one day, the Lord Jesus will return to gather us to himself. And then shall the marriage supper of the Lamb take place. And he will take us to our eternal home, which he has gone to prepare for us. Dear ones, I beg you, I urge you, let us not distort the marvelous picture of the covenant of grace. Let us not set before our children a stumbling block by the way we conduct ourselves in our marriage. For we are communicating. This is a great mystery, Paul says. But it actually points to the covenant of grace which Christ has established with his church. Let us rather, dear ones, seek the Lord Jesus Christ and his grace that we might grow in ever greater conformity to that covenant of grace he has brought us into. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do bow before Thee at this time, acknowledging that we are in need of Thee and Thy grace to show forth the glories of that covenant of grace through our marriages. For Father, we are, we are sinners who daily fail to keep Thy commandments. We not only sin against Thee, but we do sin against one another. We sin against our wife and we sin against our husband. And Father, we pray that Thou would help us to conduct ourselves with all due love, respect, and honor within our families. That when we must disagree, that we disagree honorably and we go to the Word of God. And even when there are those times in which we must not obey certain commands because we believe them based upon God's word to be unlawful, let us do so with the utmost respect. We pray, Father, that Thou would grant to us, by Thy grace, grant to us, Lord, the desire to draw from Thee the strength and the grace which is given to us in Christ. For the invitation is extended to even the church to come. Come, all those who athirst. Come to the living waters. Come without price, without cost. Come and draw. All of ye who are weary and heavy laden, come. Lord our God, let us, even as we have been drawn to this covenant of grace, avail of the grace within it 
to live according to thy commandments in our marriages. For therein, Father, will also our children be secure and happy and blessed. We ask these things, Father, because this will also bring great blessing to thy church and to the commonwealth. In Christ's name, amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.